Hello, and welcome to Modest Conversations. I'm here with Joe Green, a dear friend of mine who I originally met parking a Suburban in uh, in Cambridge in 2001, uh, who subsequently, after parking the Suburban, became <laughs> the founder and CEO of Causes, uh, the founder of Forward, um, and has been super active in the tech community for a long time now. So, Joe, welcome to Modest Conversations. What's on your mind? Thanks for having me in your, uh, on your casting couch here in your basement. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about uh, a lot is, you know, as inequality and in class has become such a core part of our political conversation. And I actually wrote my senior thesis in college. I spent a summer in Louisville, Kentucky, interviewing white working class men about their political views um, and thought that a right-wing populist would get elected to do an anti-immigration. So you're looking for credit on that? Yeah. Nope. Uh, so I think that Uber, which I think is an amazing company, which has made our lives like way better in many ways. I think Uber's IPO is going to be this kind of crucible moment for Silicon Valley when public opinion turns against Silicon Valley in the way that public opinion sort of turned against banking in the past or other industries. Mm -hmm. Because every time there's an IPO, there are stories written about all of the people who made money starting the company, investing in the company. And there's going to be a bunch of people who made a lot of money in Uber. And that's great because they created something super valuable. But in stark contrast to that will be the 5 million or so drivers who make very, very little money mm -hmm. and have no participation in the upside of the IPO. Yeah. And so I think that it's going to it's going to be a way to talk about this story that people generally don't like about tech. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You think back, and it's like there have been over the time there have been a bunch of kind of pieces. Like I remember many many years ago there was a whole controversy about contract workers, specifically at Google. And I think one of the big areas was on the Google Books project and how they weren't dealt into the company benefits and they weren't part of it. it to some degree, that I mean, the story does come up from time to time, but tech historically has felt not very zero sum, right? It's felt like this is accretive in a way. And like the people who participate, even if it's just a few, it's all upside for the, for everyone. Right. Um, but this is like the first time that you'll have effectively a major tech company that pretty directly employs in one form or another right. like millions of people right. or a million people. I don't actually know what the number is. I think it's days. about four and a half million drivers worldwide. Wow. It's wow. the number I've heard recently. Right. And so you think about the percentage of people who have any equity and the percentage of people who have most of the equity. Right. It's going to be pretty skewed and pretty stark. Right. I mean, for Uber specifically, like I, what I think they should do is one, I think they should have some system for drivers to buy into the IPO. When, you know, when an IPO happens, it's basically free money because yeah. most of these IPOs kind of spike right afterwards. Yep. And it's sort of free well, money. Depends how they're designed. Yes, correct. <laughs> so uh, that, that's one thing they could do. I also think... Well, can we, let's stop on that for a second, because I think yeah. that's an interesting thing. Like, one thing I've talked about with several CEOs of companies that are thinking about going public at some point is, you weirdly have this dynamic, you just saw this with Snapchat, where the founders can sell into the IPO, and frequently do. Some have made a lot of money doing that in times, and companies that even didn't necessarily long-term work. But the actual, forget the, you know, the 1099 or the broader ecosystem, but the employees don't. So the, the founders aren't locked up? I mean, again, it's all negotiations and terms, but no, not always, right? Okay. And, and it depends on how you look at these things and how, what ends up getting negotiated. So one question I've, I've never really understood why companies didn't generally let employees sell a percentage of their equity into right. the IPO, just for starters, before right. we even get to this question of like, you know, how do you compensate or how do you kind of let give people access in a broader way? I mean, I think part of that is just who has the power, yeah, right? Which is that the CEO and the founders have the power and they're making that negotiation. Yeah. 
Um, but it's a good point. And no one's going to, like, on the flip side, like, no one's going to, especially because this stuff happens so quickly and such a point in time, there's no, uh, like, recruiting benefit, right. right, to, like, negotiating this type of a term up front because it's so speculative in the first place when it all lands and all that type of stuff. Right. Um, well, maybe if they had a union, yeah, um, they would negotiate that. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, like, there's two kind of, you think about, assume that... If historically we had a lot of pure, pure, pure tech companies where a very small number of people, a hundred, a thousand, whatever, really do drive meaningful change just at the software level. And mm-hmm. now we are seeing at least several companies started where, you know, their marketplaces, they'll claim their marketplaces, they are in a lot of ways, but like there's a lot of people who think of themselves as Uber drivers, et cetera. Like that's their, especially their primary livelihood. Right. They're not on the cap table. Um, you know, one question is like, why haven't they unionized? Well, so, I mean, there has been systematic legal attacks on unions over the last 50 years that have just made it a lot harder to unionize in general. So I think that's like one big piece of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like, you know, I think- Say say more about that because I think most people, including myself, you know a lot more about this than than I do. Like, yes, like there's obviously always, there's always been tensions over unions as far back as- labor has existed like right. what, what has happened in the last few years that has been so different well so i think it's actually i've, I've been spending the last few days with my good friend ganesh sitaraman whose new book out called the middle class constant the crisis of the middle class constitution mm-hmm. and um when we were talking about so america when it was founded it was the most equal country that had ever that had ever existed in the world because like yeah we had some rich people but like george washington with mount vernon didn't compare at all to like the marble palaces of like europe and france and england right and so america was pretty equal and then the gilded age the industrialization happened the gilded age happens you have massive inequalities of wealth and then the progressive era happens we passed four constitutional amendments in 7 years mm-hmm. um but this happened through immense violence and struggle i mean the battles between unions and companies involved like rifles and bombs and Pinkertons and National Guard and yeah. like lots of people dying. And say what you like about unions today, it is very clear that the era of pretty high equality post-World War II was a lot of that was about unions. Mm-hmm. And you can actually trace the increase of inequality and the decline of unions. And so there was the um in the New Deal, there's a bunch of legislation that created the National Labor Relations Board and yep. created this thing called a closed shop. Yep. Which and there's this and I know you're like this kind of stuff. There's an interesting game theory problem to unions. So the way a basically union works is if more than half of the workers vote to join the union, then the union gets to negotiate with the employer. Yep. The problem is is you have a free rider problem mm-hmm. where if 51 percent of the people join the union and 49 percent don't, they all get the benefit. But if they're not all paying union dues, then you have sure. a bunch of free riders. So closed shop says if 51 percent join the union, everyone has everyone to. Has to. Yep. Then the Taft Hartley Act right after World War II said that individual states could make that decision. So some states like California are still closed shop. A bunch of states are called right to work. Mm-hmm. Recently, some more states have moved to right to work. There's actually a Supreme Court case called Friedrichs or District Court case that's winding its way through that might end closed shop altogether. So we've gone from 30% of the workforce at its height in the 70s in unions to 11% today. And how if you back out government uh, unions? Is, is it it's, even lower? Yeah, it's, it's I think it's 7 or 8% without government unions got it of private sector workers. yep and so and i think that what's interesting is there's not just an issue of the and, and unions are the only ones who consistently advocate for things for the working class so like minimum wage for example 70 plus percent of americans think we should dramatically raise the minimum wage the only people actually advocate for that in a meaningful way are unions not just for their members but for everybody and so 
I think that there's a really interesting question of like, what is that the next version of unions look like? What's also interesting is I think one thing you didn't mention, but I always thought was part of the history is like the role globalization plays in this, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, it's pretty hard to organize labor in sectors where the jobs can just go overseas into another jurisdiction, which was what happened to a lot of the jobs that were great union jobs historically, right? Correct. Um, but but all but even interestingly, and in some of the other jurisdiction was the South. Yes. Right. Well, again, the, the technology and commun- and and transportation and a lot of these types of things just basically the connection of the world meant that what used to when, when outsourcing used to meant going to the South. Now it means going basically anywhere, right? right. Um, and so the question in my mind is like, the interesting thing to bring it back to Uber and tech and some of these local marketplaces is it's pretty hard to put an Uber, Uber job overseas, right. right? Like that's the kind of the interesting regulatory capture component, which is partially about labor, but it's also partially about government regulation too. Like it's one of these rare instances where because it's a service, because it has to be provided locally, because it's really hard to shard off the work and put right. it anywhere else. Like all of a sudden you have this dynamic where local communities and groups and, you know, unions in some cases, actually, they have some power all of a sudden, at least in theory, right? Right. And I, Well, the interesting dynamic, and you and I have talked about this in theory with something like Uber and Lyft, and if you did want to organize those workers, yeah. is... Something Joe and I have thought about and looked at before. <laughs> so in a normal, in a normal workplace, you might say, we want to, we want to unionize. And the way that the employer can fight back against that is they can discourage people from joining the union and then they can also just like fire people yep and do very but what's interesting is because uber and lyft drivers are contract workers they can't be fired i mean they, they can be put off the system yep but so a threat to strike in uber might just be like hey we're all just gonna like we're just drive for lyft today and yep. not for uber and if uber fires them for that they're actually proving that they're not independent contractors i think right and instead employees which they really don't want to do right um and so that's kind of an interesting question. It'd be interesting to see how that could play out. Yeah. And I think the thing is that, you know, there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley, I think, who actually are pretty progressive, but believe in a somewhat sort of paternalistic uh, version of, which is like, let's sort of do a bunch of wealth transfer, but let's not necessarily give up power. Mm-hmm. And the, I think like, you're going to have, until people, unless people actually have power sharing, even if sort of the policy changes in their direction, they're still going to be mad. And you know, what political theorists tell you is you either have, if you have an unequal society, the wealthy either rig the system to screw the poor, mm-hmm. and the poor get pissed about that, so they overthrow the wealthy by basically supporting a tyrant who promises to, like, be their champion. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that could never happen in America. Of course not. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's but, – but if I was Uber – putting, you know, the hat on the other side, they really should be, and they did a little bit of this with healthcare, they should be supporting a bunch of system-wide policies to help their workers. Because part of the, like, the fundamental problem is we have this system. So there was something called the Treaty of Detroit, which happened right after World War II. So Walter Ruther, who was the head of the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union, Mm -hmm. and the big three auto companies got together after World War II and kind of came to an agreement on the responsibilities that the auto companies would have in exchange for sort of a stable workforce, yeah, which mostly was around employer-provided pensions, healthcare, et cetera. That made sense when you stay at the same company your whole life. That's not the case now. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is normally when you're the leader in an industry, if you're you know in a very powerful position, you actually are in a great place to effectively impact regulation for everyone 
to effectively maintain your lead, Correct. right? Like if you're the most profitable, most successful in anything, there's this interesting start thing that starts to play out where you say, look, all these regulations that are kind of painful for us, they're if they're good or help in some way, they're way more painful for everyone yeah, else. Called, so we called, might as well start. Yeah, it's regulatory capture. Like right. the bank, big banks do that. Right, exactly. And a lot of industries have historically done that. So the question is like, okay, so take like, again, we've been talking about Uber from the start. Let's take ride sharing. Like, why hasn't, is it because of a lack of sophistication because we're sitting on the West Coast and, you know, they don't have the experience? Like, why don't you see more attempts at regulatory capture? I think it's- Is a, it just too early? I don't know. I think it's a great question. I think, so like, what might regulatory capture look like? So just make, forcing higher wages, right? right? If, if you could come up with some sort of 1099 scheme where all the ride-sharing companies had to pay higher wages, Uber is fine with that, right? right? Because they're just passing through the consumer. They don't need, they need to be cheap enough, cheaper right. than alternatives, but like, Right. They hate being in the place they're in with Lyft, obviously. If right. they could, if there could be a regulatory scheme that boils the, the water for everyone, sure, mm-hmm. it'll hurt their profitability. But on a relative basis, isn't that a good thing for them? Doesn't that help them well, like, lock like, in their like, lead? One of the things, yeah, on that front that I was confused by. So a bunch of district uh, jurisdictions have pushed Uber to basically do further background checks on the ri- on the drivers or further licensing of the drivers. Yeah. You would think that would actually be good for them yeah. as a regulatory protective scheme. Yeah. Because they're more able to do that than some smaller competitor would be. Yeah. So from a just from a what's good for the world perspective for a minute and good for workers, they should support higher minimum wage and a bunch of government benefits for their workers because they get to offload that cost and not deal with it themselves. Although it's interesting because a higher minimum wage is a little bit more difficult for them because people aren't ultimately choosing between Uber and other things. They're choosing between a whole basket of jobs, Starbucks, work in lots of different places. I don't know, Postmates. So I think you have to be careful about where you define the lines on this because if you define it too broadly, it will hurt them. Right. right? Well, or Um, they could support earned income tax credit, which is a transfer to pe- which basically boosts people's wages through government transfer. Sure. It'll be interesting to see New York and California have passed laws to raise the minimum wage to $15. That's yeah. getting staged in. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple reasons they haven't done it. This is just purely speculative. And you know, I ran a political group working with tech companies. Um, so one I think is, is just, I think some of it's ideological, which they're kind of against regulatory capture. That's sort of a good thing. And so they don't do it. Yep. I think this gets to another favorite topic of ours, which is the Stanford problem. (laughs) Um, Joe, what's the Stanford problem? Well, the Stanford problem is that, as one of my old business partners used to say, used to call Stanford a glorified vocational school. Mm -hmm. This is admittedly, you know, as two kids who went to Harvard, a very like elitist (laughs) thing to say. But I think there is some truth. One of the things I love about Silicon Valley is that it's a very engineering-driven culture. And what's great about that is people are very pragmatic. They don't tend to be very ideological. The problem is that they don't know a lot about history, philosophy, economics, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so they just don't think about this stuff. Like I remember when, you know, Uber was first starting to get big and you'd all these taxi driver strikes. Yep. Most people in tech were like totally unsympathetic to the taxi drivers. Yep. It was like, these people are standing in the way of progress. And it's yeah. like, it's like, okay, Uber may be a better system and taxis may suck, but these are people whose livelihoods are on the line yep. who Paid a lot of a money lot of for money taxi for, yeah, down exactly. under so the, a system that they thought was the system. Right. It's not their and fault. literally their assets were devalued. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's like if I, you know, cut the value of your house in a third, you'd be out in the streets too. Yeah. And so I and I think I see that where like these companies, it doesn't seem like they're paying attention to that. Like 
you know, the fact that Uber and Lyft don't have some proactive plan for what's going to happen with driverless cars and what's going to happen to all these drivers is just shocking to me. Well, I think part of it also is this argument that I sometimes fall victim to and believe in, which is just like this technological determinist argument, which says like, right. look, self-driving cars, Uber actually is like a small player in this game. This right. is happening with or without me. And so the question right. is, if it's going to happen anyway, right, um, would you rather be driving it or not driving it? Right. Well, um, but you... but. The flip side to that is, you know, somebody asked a question at this book talk the other day about um, what happens when we are able to augment, like, the intelligence and strength of people. Yeah. And maybe rich people get that and poor people don't. And the response is that, like, yeah, but we can regulate that. Yeah. And I feel like in something like that, there's almost this, like, we don't even think of that as an option. Like, but, like, that's what we do well, throughout and history. I, I think part of it is, is because there how I think that there's a balance to even that, right? Which is, I actually do think that on the flip side, Washington, one of the great failures of it to like, and from my perspective, sitting literally in Silicon Valley right now, is that there are things that are unbelievably difficult to regulate or think about. Um, right. My favorite example is a lot of these things like, my favorite law in history, the the right to be forgotten in Europe, right? Which is just a completely nonsensical law because basically it assumes a level of regulation where your only options, which are very scary. Or say what the law is. Well, basically the law, the short version is it's basically the, the right that you can say, I want, you know, this result removed from Google about me. That's like the okay. very short version of it. Um, that's nuts, right? <laughs> um, because it's basically the equivalent of saying to people that they have a right over my memory or what I store in my right. head, which is, if you think about it, literally the scariest thing you possibly I mean, you, right. we've, we've debated freedom of speech a long time. Never in history have we debated freedom of memory. Right. That's a very <laughs> right? Orwellian. It's very Orwellian, right? And so there's this, this interesting challenge where in Silicon Valley, there is, I think, much more sensitivity from a technological perspective to what is regulatable and what is the cost of that regulation in terms of human organization and freedom. Because in theory, everything is regulatable if you're willing to give up all privacy. But you right. can't simultaneously have certain types of regulation and privacy at the same time. Like it's kind of one or the other because regulation that you can't enforce is very bad regulation. So I think right. there's a challenge because I think a lot of the history to date where technology has been in the pure digital space, mm -hmm. regulation is both very, very difficult and therefore not very feasible. And you see there's too much history of politicians talking about regulating things, which if you know anything, you're like, that is a terrible idea. Whereas right. now we move into technology really deeply impacting the physical and real world. Right. Actually, now we're on much more historically trotting ground. We're like, right. oh yeah, like we actually can make decisions about how we want this to work. Um, right. Airbnb being the other, you know, obvious example, like, you know, you always have to talk about them in the same breath. Right. Very different businesses, very different regulatory regimes and schemes, but in both cases, places where tech companies have crossed back into extremely defined, valuable, and well-regulated markets. Right. Um, well, and, and you, it's interesting to, you know, look at Airbnb because, you know, They've had actually a lot more trouble fighting regulation than Uber has. Yes. I actually wrote a column about this and like the difference between the two, right? And yeah. you know, the the thing I put in this column was was like, look, the reason that Airbnb has been less successful is because in any given municipality, you have very few Airbnb hosts and lots and lots of citizens who aren't benefiting from Airbnb in their own city because right. and they are annoyed by it. And are annoyed by it. Whereas Uber is the opposite, where you have right. not that many drivers relative to the number of passengers and everyone uses it locally. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> but like, you know, and some of the, like, you know, Airbnb regulation, like, totally makes sense. Yeah. Like, there are lots of the neighborhoods that have become way more expensive yep. to live in because of Airbnb. And so some of the regulations that say, like, you can rent out a spare bedroom, but you can't rent out, like, multiple separate apartments because then you're running a hotel. And then you should be regulated in the same way a hotel is regulated. 
Yeah, which gets really mucky, right? Like, and I think challenging. I mean, you know, the other one which I love is there's all these businesses that have tried to start and have started in like Airbnb for dinner. Like, why can't I run a restaurant out of my house, right? And and you get into the regulation, like, why does regulation of restaurants exist in the first place? Really good health reasons, yeah, like historically. Like, let's talk about talk about history. Like, read the jungle, right? right? <laughs> like, it's like so. I think there is like good reasons for this to exist, but there is also a strong technological argument that says that was really really important when information was scarce, when access to information and knowledge was scarce. Mm-hmm. Those regulations are far less important in a world where it's actually really easy to find out if a place is safe or not, relatively speaking, to you know understand what you can say. So it, it's very difficult because I think. The tech argument usually in some of these markets ends up relying on, all right, let's go back to why this regulation exists in the first place and whether the regulation is even relevant anymore, right? right? Um, which is one form of it. And I think Airbnb, there's a lot of strong cases on that. You know, even taxi medallions, like do taxi medallions exist from a safety and access perspective or do taxi medallions exist as a revenue initiative by governments and controlling what it seems like a common access to common roads? Right. They're both true, right? right? And so the question is, is like, how they think there's very different opinions about how that should look going forward. And you know, honestly, where the moral authority even is um, right. going forward on this stuff. Well, I think, I think coming back to sort of where we started, I think that, you know, the, the lesson to me or one of the lessons of the Trump election, which it's like sort of wealthy people never really team seem to take seriously until it's maybe too late is that like, if Wealth becomes too concentrated and power becomes too concentrated. People will rebel. And the Trump election is a form of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and that's the form you would expect it to take in a republic. Like, that's what peop- political theorists have talked about for a long time. That is, of course, unless wealth is just irrelevant because we all live in VR. Well, okay. <laughs> Another favorite topic. <laughs> yeah. So let's bring it full circle because we've, we've, this has been a good conversation, but let's just go back to like the first thing you proposed, which is a pretty concrete thing. Let's pretend you wanted hypothetically to deal Uber drivers in to, you'd propose the IPO, for mm-hmm. instance, to, to just for no more than, you know, let's pretend it's a 5% cost, whatever it ends up being, you know, you figure out how to like, how to bear the cost from a company perspective because you're worried about the blowback, right? Which you're proposing will happen when this contrast is so stark, right? right. When you have Travis sitting in the back with an Uber driver, a billionaire right. and a driver, and it's like you ha- and a dash cam and like right. that type of scenario. So you want to work on that. Like, how would you do that? Like, what would you actually do? Well, I mean, I don't know. Do, I mean, does it even have to cost them anything? I mean, so like when you have an IPO, right? You basically like go to a bunch of banks. Yeah. And they basically broker the like selling of all they broker the selling of all those shares. Yeah. Couldn't you just have an allocation which is like these are sold to Uber drivers? Well, first of all, you have a problem with uh credit investor status, which I believe I'm pretty sure that buying into an IPO you still have to be the credit investor. Really? The second it's a, a huh. I could be wrong about that by the way. Um but I believe I mean part of the reason is like I assume that there's a big challenge. You couldn't I don't you couldn't give Maybe you could give. It's an interesting problem, though, about exactly how you time these things and what people are buying, mm-hmm. right? And, like, how you figure it out. And the other thing to mind is, like, there's no such thing as free money, right? It's like, if you underprice an IPO so it pops, that's a cost to the company. It's effectively right. a marketing cost, right? right? If you overprice an IPO and it goes down, like, there's another, you know, basically, it, or you basically, you, you found a bunch of suckers to overpay for something that right. has a PR cost to some degree in some level. So it's, it's an interesting thing, but I don't think there's like free money available, right? Inherently, the question is like, what are you willing to pay and mm-hmm. how would you slice it up? And how would you even that work? I mean, 
you know, with 4 million Uber drivers, you can do the math. You're not going to make anyone rich on the IPO, right. right? And again, like you could figure out some devices or some things, but are you just kind of pushing around what is ultimately like a structural problem? Right? Is there actually a marginal solution or are we doing just a much deeper problem about this type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could in theory say like, you know, your drivers who have been driving a certain amount of time or a certain number of hours, like get to... Or don't drive for Lyft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or don't drive for Lyft. Uh, I wonder if they know if the, which drivers also. I'm sure they're. I'm sure they know pretty much because you can like see they took a gap and then came yeah, back. It's like, what are you doing? Are you taking a coffee break for <laughs> seven minutes in between, and you happen to be. I don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, ideally, you do it like earlier on in the company. I think. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I think if if you were starting Uber from scratch, I mean, we talked. This has been yeah. a thing that comes from the idea of giving your users some form of equity. From the start, saying there's a 10% pool. I mean, we've had- Well, it's an ESOP, an employee stock, like United, like a bunch of companies had these. Like, Did they have thing. them from day one or did they set them up later? No, they set them up later. Yeah, which you can do. But I think it's just an interesting thing. I've always, we've talked many times before, I know many people have about the whole idea of, well, what happens if you, I mean, this was always kind of a somewhat silly argument with social networks. It's like, well, why don't you just give 10% of the social network? It, it's a kind of a Ponzi scheme, right? Because basically if you say the fixed pool, more right. people that join or the more people you get to join, right? right. You can, it's an equity Ponzi scheme. Well, this is between consumers and employees. But they're not, yeah. But it's a marketplace. I mean, like you could do the same thing with riders, right? Like you could do the same thing with Airbnb hosts or Airbnb. I mean, you basically are saying there's if you have a marketplace, especially a two-sided one where you need two constituents and where there's return on scale, which is yeah. the more of them you have, the better you're doing. Can you figure out a way to deal them into the economics more directly in a I way mean, that's accretive to the overall? I mean, system? I think I think there is a meaningful difference between hosts and drivers versus like riders and guests. Okay. Um, but like, you know, there were ideas. I mean, and you still have this a lot in Europe, the idea of industrial democracy where yeah. you have – or cooperatives, yeah. which are successful in certain fields. Like in Israel, the entire national bus system are these two cooperatives that are owned by the drivers. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Anyway. Well, look. This has been a great modest conversation. Awesome. Uh, I look forward to continuing this and others at future dates. Cool. Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on.